Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for today. Again, we thank you uh, for this place. We thank you for this church family that you've brought us together once again uh, under your banner of love. You've given us uh, one day a week, the Lord's Day. Of, of course, we want to be worshiping you every day of the week, but you've given us one day of the week to set aside, to come together, uh, to, to worship you, to hear from your word, uh, to sing songs of praise together towards you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this, that, that we can come together and take some time out of our, our, our busy week uh, to, to refocus ourselves and, and to know uh, what life is really all about, what, what is really important, and it's you, and it's what you have us to do. So, Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you've saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have hope. We have hope in this world, and we have hope for the next. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Depending on where you grow up, the way you say certain things can vary, can vary and sound funny to others. A few years back, there was a study done by a statistician on the way people in different parts of the U.S. refer to different things. For instance, I don't know if you probably can't read that too well, but up here, it has the word caramel. All right. So... How do you pronounce this word? As you can see, all that's in red pronounces it caramel, two syllables. And around here, you can see the blue, you pronounce it with three syllables, caramel, right? That's how people in this area pronounce it. But I grew up in this area over here, which is slightly red, so I pronounce it caramel. And, and apparently everyone here calls it caramel, but I've got the scientific evidence here to back the fact that I'm actually right. All right, the next one is how you refer to a group of two or more people. Everyone in the Northeast and basically the whole rest of the country says you guys. <laughs> Even though I'm, probably, I'm sure that's probably gonna be a victim of cancel culture pretty soon. <laughs> we have you guys in the Northeast, y'all down South. Kentucky for some reason says you all. But my question is, for the whole Philadelphia, New York City, and New Jersey areas, why is there not a fourth option for used guys? What? <laughs> this last one's my favorite here. What do you call a long sandwich with cold cuts, lettuce, etc.? Everyone else in the U.S., deep red, calls it a sub. This little part right here, Philadelphia and, and middle and south Jersey, calls it what? A hoagie. You are the only people in the entire country who calls it a hoagie. So congratulations on that one. See, language morphs and changes depending on location and depending on generation. We don't understand the King James Version of the Bible that well anymore because we just don't speak in that language anymore. However, this morning uh, we're going to be going back to a time and a very famous story when everyone in the world spoke the same exact language. Did you know that? That at one point in our, in our world's history, everyone spoke the same language and then something happened. So that now we have all these different languages, all these different cultures and, and, and all that. So what happened to change that? How does that connect today? And what does that mean for the future? 
So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Genesis chapter 11. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Genesis chapter 11, or or if you you have a smartphone with you, you can look it up on your favorite Bible app. Genesis chapter 11, I want us to all see this together. Verse 1, this is after the flood, Noah's Ark, all that. This, This is after that. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Now, as you're reading through the Bible and you first read this, you might be tempted to think, wait a second. This seems to contradict the verse right before that at the end of chapter 10. What does that say? These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these nations, and out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So you might think, well, okay, now we're into chapter 11. That seems to contradict what it just said at the end of chapter 10. It said that all the nations spread out across the earth there. However, both chapter 10 and the second part of chapter 11 is all what? So-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, so-and-so. It's all genealogies, which have their own interesting information and connections to world history. I'm a nerd like that. I find that interesting. The first half of chapter 11 is stepping outside of these genealogies for a minute to discuss in further detail how the nations spread out over the earth. It wasn't just, oh, hey, I don't like you. I'm going to go over here. And everybody said that and spread out all over the earth. Something very big happened to force humanity to do that. As verse 1 describes, everyone spoke the same language. There was no language barrier that's insane, isn't it? There was there, nobody said "parlez-vous français" or "hablez espagnol" or "I can't understand what you're saying." There, no, there, nobody were, was uttering those words. Even within the same language, it says that there were no different words for anything, like a lift as, expo- as opposed to an elevator. What else can we discover about how humanity was in the generation somewhat immediately after the flood? Verse 2. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, the first part of verse 2 can either be translated that those who came from Noah's sons traveled east or traveled from the east, but whatever the translation is, they ended up in the valley of Shinar. The Valley of Shinar is most likely located in the lower region of the Tigris-Euphrates River Basin and has been linguistically connected with the ancient civilization of Sumer. You've heard of that, the Sumerian uh, writing, cuneiform, the ancient civilization of Sumer. Nimrod, the most famous or the name of a famous ancient king, and not just what you call someone you're frustrated with, is connected to this area. In Genesis 10.10, we read, the most important cities in his, Nimrod's, kingdom were Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelne in where? The land of Shinar. So that's all connected to this valley here. So in Genesis 11:2, we have the beginnings of that empire, whether or not Nimrod was actually connected with the building of the Tower of Babel. The event of the Tower of Babel, according to one biblical scholar, probably happens during the generation of Shem's great-great-grandson, Peleg. We have that reference in Genesis 10.25. To Eber, 
Interesting note there, the word Hebrew is derived from the name Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The first was named Peleg. What? Why? Because during his lifetime, the earth was divided. So that's about in, in the time period that this takes place in. At first, when you think about it, you might think, but Peleg wasn't born until four generations after Shem. Wouldn't all the other men from Shem's other brothers recorded in chapter 10 have had their languages, their tribes, and their own territories by now? How can all the people on earth at that moment still be together at the beginning of chapter 11? Well, it's very possible that all the locations and languages de denoted by each of Noah's three sons' descendants were attributed to them after the experience described in Genesis 11. Remember, who wrote the book of Genesis other than the Holy Spirit? Moses, okay? The author of Genesis, Moses, is writing to who? The Israelites, the original recipients of Genesis. And so what he's doing here is he's simply telling them where the cultures they were dealing with as they were about to enter the promised land, uh, where they came from, what were the origins they all were from. It's also possible that all these generations of people until Peleg lived somewhat together and migrated together from the mountains to the valley of Shinar. How else, because you think about it, what, what, what we're going to read next. How else could the huge undertaking of building a giant tower be remotely possible unless there were generations and generations and generations of people involved? The important fact is that all of Noah's descendants ended up in the Valley of Shinar together. Everybody after the flood, all of Noah's descendants all ended up in the same place. So all these generations migrate to the fertile valley of Shinar and make that their new home. As they grow and grow, they look around themselves and say, look at everything we've done. We don't need God. We're doing well enough on our own. Look at how well we're doing. Does that sound like a familiar temptation that we have? Or perhaps the same thought we've thought from time to time? Look at how well I'm doing. We look around us and say, look at my life. I have so much to be proud of. If it weren't for me, none of this would have happened. I'd say I've done pretty well for myself. And see, as what usually happens more often than not for the descendants of Noah, that wasn't enough. It still wasn't enough. That's what precipitates verse 3. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Whereas Why is that description written here? Whereas baking their own bricks would be unnecessary for the nation of Israel and their location of Palestine because of the relative ease of quarrying stone, further east, where these people are in the area of Mesopotamia, quarrying stone and getting it to Shinar would have been much more difficult. So they have to bake their own bricks for any kind of structure. So that's why that's described there in verse 3. So all, with all of this in mind, they then say to each other, verse 4, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This was the pinnacle of human arrogance, and this is why. 
In Genesis 9.1, God blesses Noah and his sons, this is after the flood, and tells them to be fertile, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. God's ideal for, uh, idea for them to fill the earth is to spread out over the earth. So by them sticking together in the valley of Shinar has resulted in united rebellion. They say, we're just not going to do that. The fact that they say that one of their main goals is to build a city, i.e. urbanize, they, they mean to make this way of life permanent. They say, I know God told us, told us to spread out all over the earth, but we just don't want to do that. And to keep us from having to do that, we're going to build a city so we don't have to do that. We well know that in a metropolitan area, sin seems more rampant, right? It follows simple logic. You get more people together in one place, there's more capacity for sin. So here's the big problem that God sees as a very real possibility. What just happened only four generations ago? What just happened? A global flood as a result of what? the height of humanity's evil. Everyone, save one family, was destroyed out of God's grace to protect humanity from itself, to protect humanity from its own evil. <clears throat> what does God want to protect these subsequent generations from? The exact same situation again. Think with me. Where are these people hurtling towards right now? The exact same situation again, right? So God knows he needs to do something about it. And instead of destroying everybody again, he's going to do something different. The second reason why this is the pinnacle of human arrogance is this. By comparing the language these people use to describe their tower with other ancient Babylonian ideas, according to one biblical scholar, we can surmise that this tower was not just a tower to show how skilled they were. It wasn't just a skyscraper built by some guy saying, look, I want to see how tall I can build this. It wasn't just that. What this really was, was that it was meant to be a pagan temple. Ancient Babylonian temples were usually built in ziggurat form. That is a stepped building. And this is why. The reason why they did this was the belief that the ancient deities they built it this way for the ancient deities' convenience to come down from the heavens and reward them with blessing. That was the idea behind this stepped <clears throat> ziggurat building. Where'd they most likely get that concept from? The same root of thinking as here. That's why there's the description of the Tower of Babel being built to reach the heavens. That was the point of it, so that these pagan deities could come down and reward them with blessing. There was most likely a room at the top of the structure here, as illustrated here, with a bed and a table stocked with food for the gods' refreshment as they made their way up and down the tower. This stairway was meant for the pagan deities' use only. So in reality, the whole Tower of Babel itself was a giant slap in the one true God's face. By these descendants of Noah's sons building this temple, they are basically telling God that they had no more use for, that, for him, and they could create whatever other gods they wanted to to replace him. 
Man, that is an incredibly dangerous statement to make towards the one true God, isn't it? Here's the third reason that this was the pinnacle of humanity's arrogance. While elsewhere in scripture, for instance, when God blesses Abraham, he tells Abraham that he, God, would make a name for him. Abraham, right? The arrogance that the Babel builders show is that instead of letting God make a name for them, what do they want to do? They want to make a name for themselves. When we read this account of the Tower of Babel, what follows, we may think, wow, God, God kind of went a little overboard with this one, didn't he? But if we dig a little deeper than just a cursory reading, we find out just how big of a deal this really was, what these people were actually doing. It wasn't just about building a really tall tower. It wasn't even just about making a name for themselves. It was an attempt at replacing God with their own gods, building a tower for those gods to bless them instead of the one true God to bless them, and placing themselves in a position to hurdle right towards the same height of evil situation, again, that forced God to flood the entire earth. That's what they were really doing here. So God has to do something about this again, out of his grace, to protect humanity from itself. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Knowing what this ziggurat temple represented, the way this is written here, this is kind of funny, that God came down to see the city and tower, we can grasp the irony here. The temple was built for pagan deities' convenience to come down from heaven and bring blessing. The one true God who's, who, whom these builders were insulting indeed comes down from heaven. Furthermore, the one true God does not need the ziggurat, but perhaps uses it to prove the point that, what creation, that the creation that humanity has made to be a channel of divine blessing has actually become a channel of judgment. What is God's response? Verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same, same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. This isn't God quashing their dreams. This is God preventing them from being in the same exact situation they were in when he had to flood the entire world and destroy the entire human race, save for one family. No one was fooling God here. He knew exactly what these people were doing and why they were doing it. Their declaration of independence from God was going to cost them dearly. They thought that if they stuck together, disobeyed God's command to spread out all over the earth. They stuck together. They could do anything and not have to rely on the one who created them and had already destroyed the earth. They probably looked around them and said to each other, look at all we're, we're doing and are capable of. Did God do any of this? No, we did. Why should we even believe he actually exists anymore? Like I've referenced already, this sounds like a very familiar mindset. By this point in Genesis, and unfortunately a very familiar mindset today, right? 
Humans had thought like this before, and what happened? It brought God's judgment of the flood upon them. What do we see now? Things still hadn't changed by this point, Genesis chapter 11, and humans are again thinking this way again. Again, God knows what they're thinking and wants to head it off at the past instead of allowing it to continue any further. But instead of destroying them with water this time, this is what he does, verses 7 through 9. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. God, God is way. Imagine this. You are part of a very large extended family. You have had generations to perfect greatness, human greatness. Building the city of Babel and its towering temple is an exciting thing. It's marked the beginning of a new era of human history. It is the beginning of a strong city that can defend itself, provide for itself, and create for itself. It's the first of its kind, showing the achievements of humanity. And what else? You won't have to rely on a God you can't see ever again. You are, about, you are going about your day in this magnificent city when all of a sudden there's a commotion up ahead and people are shouting words you've never heard before. You open your mouth to ask someone next to you what's going on, and they look at you like they have no idea what you just said. Babel is indeed a symbol of a new era, but not the one that the people living in it thought it to be. It is the beginning of a new era of different languages that will lead to people of the same language finding each other and then spreading out over the earth. This will lead to the development of new cultures, new religions, and new adaptations of humans to their new locations. New tribes will form from Noah's descendants, and some of these tribes will become people groups, some of these people groups will become city-states, and some of these city-states will become ancient empires. Humanity's initial thought was, hey, here's a thought. How about we don't obey God's command to spread out over the face of the earth. That was the first step. That was the initial thought. That initial thought then progressed to all sorts of disobedience and was going to put them on the fast track, again, to the height of evil. So God went back and addressed the very act, the very first initial act of disobedience that we find in verse 2. That of Noah's descendants disobeying his command to spread out over the earth and simply settling in one place in Shinar. Through his judgment of creating new languages, he forced humanity to finally do what he knew was best for it and spread out over the earth. Just like the flood changed the earth itself forever, everything about it, the entire climate, everything that we're still dealing with today, still reeling with today, the creation by God of different languages and forcing people to spread out forever changed humanity. 
God wanted to make sure that humanity never became as sinful as it was before the flood ever again. And Babel, a great city with no enemies to topple it or keep it in check, was well on its way to becoming that again. They had already forgotten God, and once you've forgotten about God, there's no telling how evil you can become. That was the original sin. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. See, before they only had knowledge of good. But once they ate a piece of that fruit, they now had knowledge of evil. They were originally created to go as far down the path of goodness as they possibly could. Because who awaited at the end of the path of goodness? God himself. There was nothing bad about that. There was everything to be gained and only good to be gotten from that. Once you have a knowledge of what evil is, now you have a new path opened up to you and you can go down as far down that path as you want. So once you've forgotten about God, there's no telling how evil you can become. One of the sins of those who built Babel was claiming independence and going beyond that to even spiting God. Trying to spite God begins, begins with declaring your independence from him. I hope that God's word this morning has shown anyone who thinks they can get through life without God the dangers of that folly. If you fail to acknowledge God's provision, God's blessing, and God's teaching moments as the sources of your life, and instead think you and your skills are the source, guess what? You risk God taking things away to make you more dependent on him. Now, none of us would ever vocally declare that we can't or don't have to rely on God anymore. But each of us has to ask ourselves the question, is how I'm living showing dependence on God or independence from God? Is the way I'm living showing that? One major example of living in independence from God is blatantly relying on everything and everyone else instead of relying entirely upon him. We seek comfort, security, and stability from other people and everyone else or situations rather than from God, the only one who can actually give it to you. Another major example of living in independence from God is when we just go about living our lives, doing what we want to do, and not acknowledging God or seeking to honor him with our lives until what? Until something goes wrong. Then it's time to what? Either blame God when we haven't even been thinking about him this entire time, or it's time to seek him again. But why don't we always acknowledge God in all of our ways, all the time, as Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says? Why is honoring God and living by his standards something we ignore and something we place on the back burner until we're forced to start seeking him again? Some of you sitting here might not think that you're far from depending upon and living for God all the time. But your independence from God takes a smaller, more seemingly acceptable form. And that is being worried or anxious about anything. Here's why. Worrying ignores God's goodness. Worrying forgets God's providence, 
God's sovereignty. You essentially are taking back from God's hands that which was never in your control to begin with to waste the precious time God has given to you in order to praise him and in order to live with him and trying to come up with a solution to your problems yourself. Worry ignores that God is always in control no matter what the circumstances seem like. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells his followers, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Never. Can they actually do anything for you? Never. He goes on to say, so don't worry about these things. Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Why? Because they don't have that belief in God. They don't have him as their father. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. That's why the apostle Paul can tell the Philippians, so don't worry. Don't be anxious about what? Anything. People who worry about these things, Jesus calls people of weak faith. That's a pretty blatant statement, isn't it? He doesn't pull any punches there. Worrying about something is not isolated behavior. It's directly connected to your faith. It's directly connected to how dependent you are on God or how independent you are from him. Beyond our declaring our own independence from God and what God wants to teach us about the dangers of that, this account of the Tower of Babel has profound biblical and worldwide ramifications, things we're still reeling from today. From the very moment of the judgment of different languages for humanity's arrogance, the world is dealt with the heartache, pain, war, and destruction that arose out of that in the thousands of years since. Humanity has been rocked by the ramifications of this one act of arrogance and pride towards God through this point and into the coming days. The Tower of Babel brought the judgment of disunity and war. But God's redemption of humanity and the world will bring redemption from this disunity caused by different languages. Fast forward into the future, and we read this in John's vision of heaven. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Man. That is going to be an awesome experience, isn't it? That's what God will bring those he has redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ full circle back to. There will be people from every tribe, every nation, every language that he has saved through faith in his Messiah standing before the throne of God, pouring out their praise and worship towards him in a mighty roar. The, dis the disunity that our world has been rocked from will be healed only through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And what does this tell us? That only Jesus can and only Jesus will unify the world in humanity. It simply cannot come from any politician, government, or world leader. If a mere human has his or her sights on doing that themselves, that is a huge red flag. 
You want to know who really wants to rule the world as a unified one world government? The future Antichrist, fueled and eventually indwelt by the one who has always had his sight set on ruling the world, Satan himself. It can only come through the redemption of Jesus. Only Jesus can and only Jesus will unify humanity and peace. And that is something truly to look forward to. There will be a day when he will stand his feet on the Mount of Olives and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and he will rule over the entire world with his peace and his justice. In the meantime, what is meant to be a glimpse into different aspects of this coming kingdom of Jesus? You're right here. You're sitting in it. You are a part of it. You are a part of the family of it, the church. As we covered well over a year ago, there are different spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to his church in order to equip it to reach this world for the gospel of Jesus and to show his church glimpses at the kingdom of Jesus. One of those gifts is the gift of tongues. I'm not going to get into all the details and specifics of why this gift, along with all the others, it continues until the day that Jesus returns, nor the explanation for what it is. What it is, biblically, is the supernaturally given gift of being able to speak in an earthly language that you don't natively know in order to reach someone who does know that language with the hope of the gospel. That's the point of it. It's not to be some crazy experience rolling around on the floor. It's to speak a language uh, that somebody else already knows, an, uh, an earthly language you don't know. You have the sp supernatural gift to be able to speak it. In that way, the gift of tongues now in the current church age is a glimpse at the unity of the language being used in worship of God. That language is not a barrier at that point when that gift is being used. It's a vehicle of the unifying message of the gospel of Jesus as his one church redeemed by his blood. So just as with everything else, there will also be redemption of the judgment that originated at the Tower of Babel. And, it, and doesn't that go hand in hand with who God is, God of redemption? He is the God of redemption. If you are living your life as functioning independent of God, it's never too late to recognize that and turn back to him. If you've never given your life to him by recognizing that Jesus took your place in dying for your sins, do that today. You will see him start to go to work on your life, redeeming it in every area, and be astonished at what he will accomplish in your heart, in your life, and in your family. If you have given your life to Jesus, but you live your life in constant worry, by taking, that, taking back that dependence on God, give that up. Give it back to him. Place yourself back in God's hands and God's control, which is his to begin with, which never changed. You're the one who did something about it and tried stealing it back for yourself. And experience the peace of God that no human can manufacture himself, that only he can give. And the peace of God through Jesus Christ, that can only protect your mind and your heart when you do that. Our lives were never meant to live in independence from God. Our lives were always meant to live in dependence on God in every way and in every area. 
Surrender every area of your life to his Holy Spirit's transformation and witness all that he will do. God is a God of redemption. (laughs) And I think every single one of us here can declare, thank you, God. God is a God of redemption, and just as he will redeem what happened at the Tower of Babel, he is in the process of redeeming everything in your life, too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very famous story, everything that it teaches us, everything that it reveals to us about who you are. You are the God of redemption, and you will come back full circle, and you will redeem what happened at the Tower of Babel. And Lord, let us never forget that our lives must be lived in dependence on you. I pray that if we take any of that back for ourselves in any area of our lives, that we would give that back to you. We would release that today. We would say, God, I I don't want this for myself anymore. I don't want to walk away from you with this anymore. I don't want to worry about this anymore. Take this back. I want the peace of Jesus Christ to guard my heart and soul and mind with only the peace that you can give. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.